This podcast may contain explicit language. Welcome to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast. I'm Tom Duncan. And I'm Dana Duncan. Tonight we apply our patent-pending Stanley rubric to The Magnificent Seven, currently streaming on VOD. My apologies that Stars took down The Magnificent Seven at the beginning of the month of May. I know I had advertised it as being on there last week. But before we launch into this week's movie, next week we will be starting Military Month in honor of Memorial Day in May by covering A Bridge Too Far, movie I have not yet seen but is one of Dana's favorites, starring Sean Connery, Anthony Hopkins, Lawrence Olivier, Elliot Gould, and Gene Hackman. You won't want to miss that one, so catch it on Netflix before next week's show. Also, you can still sign up for our weekly newsletter either by the website in the show notes, you can subscribe at the bottom of every page, or you can also email us at greatestalltimemoviepodcast at gmail.com. And for anyone that signs up this month, you will get access to a few curated lists we have in store that tie into that week's movie, including Best Big Name Actor Cast, Best Kubrick Movies on Streaming, and Top Denzel Movies to Stream. So with that, Dad, I've only seen this movie once before, and I purely watched it on Reputation. We're talking about The Magnificent Seven. Now that that, I, that was a poor transition by me, but still. But I have only a scarce memory of you describing this to me before I watched it for the first time. Is it too much to say that you have a much closer relationship with this movie? Yes, I do, because I watched this with my dad. And uh, it was, I probably was uh, 10, 11 years old when I first saw it. Happened to be on one of those uh, uh, times when the networks would have old movies on or the movie of the week. And they would broadcast it usually like on a Tuesday or Wednesday because it was cheaper than putting together a television show necessarily. But I remember watching this and just being mesmerized by the performances of a couple of the stars who I thought just absolutely were almost breathtaking in their presence. Uh, that being Yul Brenner, Steve McQueen, and Charles Bronson. <laughs> they really were able to dominate a screen. And at the time, you know, I'm talking about watching it on television, which was a... Uh, 24 inch or 32 inch console TV, which was like a piece of furniture that sat on the floor and didn't even have a remote. Yeah, that's right. You honestly keep telling us that you were the remote. Is that not right? Yes, I was. I laid on the floor and I was responsible for turning the television and this was pre-cable. So we had a rotor on our roof and I would turn the rotor so it would face north towards Madison or south towards Rockford. And so I would have to turn the rotor to adjust it so we'd pick up the signal the best. And so you know you're in your late 50s if you remember the sound of which was the rotor turning. I'm glad you said that because at first I thought you were doing the 20th Century Fox fanfare. <laughs> yeah. Uh, for those of you who don't know or are just new to the audience, uh, the company name here is Ronnie Duncan Studios, and uh, that's actually my grandfather, Dana's dad, who 
is basically the namesake of the company because he gave us our love of sports and movies. And it's the two conversations by which we've been able to carry this multi-generational Duncan lineage of conversations going. So just uh, filling that in for anybody new to the show, that's kind of where the reference points are. And it's always special when we do one of these movies that has a connection point like that. With that, let's get into the movie. Let's give everybody some background. You have a plot summary for us, sir. I do. A gang of bandits led by Calvara, played by Eli Wallach, periodically raids a Mexican village for food and supplies. After the latest raid during which Calvara kills a villager, the village leaders decide they've had enough. On the advice of the village elder, they decided to fight back. Taking the few objects of value, three villagers ride to a town just inside the United States border, hoping to barter for weapons. They are impressed by Chris Adams, Yul Brenner, a veteran gunslinger, and approach him for advice. Chris suggests they hire gunfighters to defend the village as men are cheaper than guns. At first, agreeing only to help them recruit, Chris eventually decides to lead the group. Despite the meager pay offered, he finds five willing gunmen. At a time when gunslinging days are reaching an end, Adams helps recruit a band of men, each with their own reason for taking on what appears to be a lost cause. Cast for the movie. Probably one of the more star-studded casts of, gosh, I think the 1960s at that point, although I'm not sure it was at the time it was originally made. But Yul Brenner as Chris Adams, leader of the Seven. Steve McQueen as Vin Tanner, a drifter. Charles Bronson as Bernardo O'Reilly, a professional in need of money. Robert Vaughn as Lee, the traumatized veteran deserter. Brad Dexter as Harry Luck, the fortune seeker. James Coburn as Britt, the knife expert, and no, I am not describing the A-team here. Horst Buckholtz as Chico, the young, hot-blooded rebel. Eli Wallach as Calvira, the bandit chief. Vladimir Sokolov as the old man. Jorge Martinez de Hoyos as Hilario. Rosenda Monteros as Petra. Rico Alaniz as Soltero. Pepe Hearn as Tomas, and Natividad Vasio as Miguel. Recognition for this film, it is a 2013 National Film Registry inductee. It is the second most shown film in U.S. television history behind only The Wizard of Oz. The film is also ranked number 79 on the AFI's list of American cinema's 100 most thrilling films. Akira Kurosawa, for his part, was reportedly so impressed by the film He presented John Sturges with a sword. At the time the movie came out, Yul Brenner was huge on Broadway because he had just completed The King and I, and then he did the film version. So he was kind of transitioning into film. Steve McQueen was very young and and, uh, up and coming. Charles Bronson, the same. Robert Vaughn had done quite a bit. He ended up having a big career on television until late in life when he was hawking up. personal injury law firms. Brenner had done The King and I as the film, but he was already a star from a few years before that. I think it was either 54 or 55. He'd done The Ten Commandments for DeMille. So I think by that just alone being in that epic, he was already kind of the headliner on this movie. And in fact, I'm going to go through it here in a second. He's part of the reason why this got made. So 
just a, a little filler on that last point, though, before we move on. If you were not with us for last week's episode, Seven Samurai was a Japanese film by Akira Kurosawa that we covered last week for 1954. And this movie is solely based upon that script. There's a little title card at the beginning of the opening credits that gives credit to that. So these stories have some overlap and we're covering them simultaneously or back-to-back weeks in order to do a compare and contrast like we did previously for High Noon and Rio Bravo last year. If you uh, want to listen to those episodes, they're back from about the middle of last year, 2020. Okay, before I lose the point, though, did you know? Did you know? It was Yul Brenner who approached producer Walter Mirisch with the idea of doing a Western adaptation of Akira Kurosawa's classic, Seven Samurai. Did you know? Yul Brenner had a major say in casting decisions, including the decision to cast Steve McQueen. He specifically requested that McQueen be cast as Vin Tanner. Brenner later regretted the move since he and McQueen developed a disastrous relationship on set. Did you know? According to Eli Wallach's autobiography, Yul Brenner had a major problem with what he perceived as Steve McQueen trying to upstage him. According to Wallach, McQueen would do things on screen with Brenner to draw his attention to his character. Examples were his shaking of the shotgun shells and taking off his hat to check the sun during the hearse scene, and leaning off his horse to dip his hat in the river when the seven cross into Mexico. Brenner was supposedly so worried about McQueen stealing his limelight in scenes that he hired an assistant to count the number of times McQueen touched his hat when he was speaking. Yul Brenner, 5'10", was concerned to make sure that he always appeared substantially taller than Steve McQueen, who was 5'9 and a half, to the point of making a little mound of earth and standing on it in all of their shots together. McQueen, for his part, casually kicked at the mound every time he passed by it. Did you know? The one-upsmanship between Yul Brenner and Steve McQueen spread to the other actors, and they all started pulling stunts on their own in order to get the audience's attention. While a lot of the attention-hogging did make it into the finished film, John Sturgis was terrified by how quickly he lost control of his cast. Did you know? In later years, Yul Brenner and Steve McQueen reconciled. McQueen, dying of cancer, called Brenner to thank him. What for, queried Brenner. You could have had me kicked off the movie when I rattled you, replied McQueen, but you let me stay and that picture made me, so thanks. Brenner told him, I am the king and you are the rebel prince. Every bit is royal and dangerous to cross. McQueen said, I had to make it up with Yul because without him I wouldn't have been in that picture. Did you know? The horse that Yul Brenner was riding was Pie, the same one that James Stewart rode in all or most of his westerns. It was found while researching Stewart's horse. Did you know? Composer John Williams was a member of the orchestra that recorded Elmer Bernstein's score. He played the piano. Did you know? Pay close attention to Eli Wallach whenever he handles his gun. Whenever he puts the gun back into his holster, he always looks down at it. That was because Wallach wasn't used to drawing the weapon and didn't want to look foolish by missing the holster while putting back his gun, as Wallach would admit in the DVD documentary. (laughs) So, Dad, what is this movie about? This movie is about a group of men coming together to overcome impossible odds for various reasons and to put together, for whatever reason, some level of sacrifice to help for a greater good. There is certainly a lost cause angle to this movie. I think if you were to give the elevator pitch, it has to do with the adaptation. 
So it's going to be very similar to how we did last week. But overall, I, I just simply would say that it's a bullies versus defenders movie as a lot of these kind of, I don't want to say bipolar, but binary. It's kind of a binary movie of good and evil most of the time. I think that if I were to do a direct compare and contrast with Seven Samurai, I think they did a better job in the Japanese version of blurring the lines. But you can definitely see the American influences of this post-World War II era that probably carried up through the mid-60s of not nuanced, but really the there's good, there's evil. We're presenting two very easy sides. You get a root for the one side, even though they may be kind of, what's the term I'm looking for? Kind of anti-heroes, because I, I wouldn't say any of the seven is necessarily the quintessential hero of American Westerns per se, although the Western's a little bit different in that regard as it has a lot of anti-heroes. But it's certainly not the darker Westerns that we get in the more postmodern era, kind of uh, the Cohen-esque type of stuff that we get now. I agreed. I mean, the um, and why am I drawing a blank? The uh, Clint Eastwood. Unforgiven? Unforgiven, where it basically uh, highlights the good are really very flawed and highlights the flaws. Well, right, because, I mean, he's supposed to be undermining the normal emphasized good lawman who is Gene Hackman's character in that movie, who is actually the bad guy throughout. So let's go to best performance then. Who do you have down? A Yule Brenner. By far, this this film was just, he just portrayed a level of, I don't know, there was a presence that filled the screen as far as I was concerned. He had a level of, he came across as being both interested and diffident. He had a, a raw spirit, a, a meanness, a, a toughness, but yet at the same time portrayed it with a, a level of empathy and, I don't know, softness, uh, compassion. So I just thought uh, he did a really great job and uh, really was a key to the sex, success of this film. I had a much different take. I honestly, and respectfully, I'll just disagree. I didn't think many of the performances, at least acting-wise, were all that notable. They seemed to be star-making roles, but I didn't think there was a whole lot of nuance. I didn't think there was anything other than sheer star-actor charisma, at least for Brenner and McQueen. I think some of the other supporting casters you got a little bit, but I was kind of taken aback by how aloof uh, some of these performances seem to be. Obviously, I disagree, but... Well, I know. I think you come at it from a different... It's hard for you to probably see it in a different light than you did originally because you grew up with this movie. So I wonder if that maybe plays into it, but... It had been a while since I had seen the film, and after I got about 15 minutes into the film, I'm going, oh, boy, I, why have I not watched this again in the last, like, 15 or 20 years? Because this is just so good. That's just me. 
Well, and again, I think I had a little bit of a problem with the fact that we did a, a very <laughs> distinct compare and contrast with the other film. And I found parts that I liked about this one. And I found parts about the other one that I really liked that kind of clouded where I was coming from. I couldn't just enjoy this on its own. So it, it seemed like there were either pieces that were missing or while I liked certain pieces that it, it just, I don't know, maybe I'm stuck on that a little bit. So I guess you might know a little bit more of where I went with uh, my <laughs> best performance. I went with Elmer Bernstein. We don't often nominate composers, but the driving score is really what sets the tone of the movie from every tense moment to the bright and moving waves of the theme. Uh, we get one of the more iconic pieces of movie music here, and it it really gives you a certain emotional feeling throughout. There, there's a brightness to it that makes the film a lot less dour than Seven Samurai. I think there were parts of that one because there was without a, a lot of music, and I know some people might get on me about that, but I, I didn't feel like the score was a central part of Seven Samurai. This, the music was its own character, and I think he made it distinct and emblematic of the Western without it being too much. So I, I think he did a fantastic job from that aspect. Who do you have for secondary? So I wanted to give a small asterisk because adaptation is really hard. And I can see definitely all of the struggles that they had in adapting this one by just the choices that they made from characters to plotting to some of the rest of it. I grant you that Kurosawa must have thought it was a really good adaptation to be able to like give a ceremonial sword to it, or at least give his approval and sign off, which is not something if you had your work adapted at all would necessarily be uh, how some people would act given that I don't think that this movie captures the same heart or nuance of the original. That being said, my actual best secondary performance, though, was Charles Bronson. For being a tough guy, at least in the two movies that of his that I'm most familiar with, Great Escape and this one, he has a great knack for bringing out a great sensitive side. Yeah. His scenes with the kids and parenting and what fear is, I just found to be really engaging and kind of in the same way that you got some of those heart moments with Kiko Chio uh, from last week. Kiko Chiyu, excuse me. I don't know. I, I'm still bad with my Japanese pronunciation. You can tell I've had a little bit more practice with Spanish this week. That he had some of those emotional moments that kind of humanized and were vulnerable. I think Bronson has some of the same here, but that makes his tough guy appeal that much more charismatic to me. Okay. And I just like his ending demise where he essentially saves the kids and puts himself on the line. And that ends up being his undoing, but in a way that seems fitting. And ultimately, part of the reason why his character and some of the others were putting themselves on the line is they knew that they had become antiquated, that the life they had was coming to an end. And this basically put them out of their misery because 
what they were going to do or what they had done was no longer uh, apropos and, and they weren't sure what they were going to do. And so it's almost fitting that that ended in a blaze of glory uh, the way it did. But my secondary performance was a horse bark Holtz. I thought really? he, uh, yeah, I thought he did a very interesting job of playing that part. I just enjoyed his his uh, part. He he. This is pretty much the only American film he did. He became a he was already a star when he was cast into this part in Germany, and he had a long career in Germany that spanned well into the nineties as a leading man in German film. And I just liked his part. I thought he. Uh, I had a more appreciation of his part now. And quite frankly, unlike you, watching this film, I ended up with a greater appreciation of Seven Samurai than I had originally when I watched it. And uh, uh, I thought that his character uh, really Americanized that role pretty well. Well, we were trying to talk about it last week, and... We were trying to ask, you know, who was the Kikuchiu uh, character out of that movie? The problem is, is that Chico is really a manifestation of two characters from Seven Samurai. Because the character he's portraying is not only Kikuchiu, but it's also uh, Katsushira, the younger guy that wants to be part of the team up and, and, and all yes. of that. And so this mashup of characters, it kind of took me out of it. And then... I don't mean to be, what what's the word I'm looking for? Not adverse, but oppositional. Uh, you usually have a better word for uh, describing it. But anyway, I thought he grossly overacted just about everything he was in. <laughs> like, especially that scene where he walks into the bar again and he's just drunk. Like, uh, you don't need to go so far out of your way to make your point. Like, I, I thought that was some of the worst overacting I've seen in a while in one of these movies we've seen. Uh, he overplayed to highlight the difference between he and the underperforming that the rest of the seven were doing, the other six. Contrarian was the word I was looking for. Well, yes, because that's what that's your pet name among the family. Even so, you and I often agree on a lot of things. For this movie in particular, we've apparently come from opposite ends. Although I would uh, grant you, and you, you said I was different in that one, this movie does give me a better appreciation for Seven Samurai. I just don't know if it's the same one that you and I came to. Yes. Okay. So who's your most charismatic then? Steve McQueen. It was clear that Steve McQueen was going to be a star and a big star. And uh, I mean, there's a reason why he's kind of the, the, the definition in the 60s of cool for the most part. If, if you want to talk about a group of actors that would be considered cool, Steve McQueen, Sean Connery, there's just a certain amount of them that just emanate this machismo that just... Uh, they're just manly and uh, guys just wish they were them. You know, it's an old, it was an old joke about a, that a comedian said is I'm writing a book on uh, how to score with any woman. 
Beastie heard- McQueen. Well, no, it was, uh, what's the um, Uncle Jesse? Um, oh, it'd be John Stamos. Yes, yes. The book is, is this. It's how to score with any woman. First page, be John Stamos. Page two, there is no other fucking way. <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah. what it was with uh, Steve McQueen. I mean, I, I don't know that. I know Steve McQueen was married, and I ha- believe he had a family and everything, but it just, he kind of had this reputation or look at him. He just like, Steve McQueen could snap his fingers like Fonz, and every woman would be on his arm. Yeah. There's there's a lot of truth to that. Like I, you could see his star power, but I think he really hits it home at the next John Sturgis movie that at least three of the primary actors in this end up doing. A movie yes. that we almost covered last year, but uh, yes, went off of. We still have to. We were yeah, I thought about it as a suggestion for a movie to uh, do during this military month, but we ended up deciding on some other ones. Yes. I think it is currently available on streaming. I just don't remember exactly which one at the moment. My most charismatic, Eli Wallach. Come on. Yes. Is there a better smiling bad guy? <laughs> He's so cartoonish. <sighs> yeah. I, I, I don't know. I just love Eli Wallach. Well, there, you know. Really it, no, it doesn't have to be more complicated than that. And, and how he ends up playing, because he was in this role playing a Mexican bandit. And then, of course, he does the spaghetti westerns with, with uh, Clint Eastwood. You know, and he's a classic trained actor off of Broadway and ends up doing these parts. And, you know, he was part of the actor's studio. He trained with uh, Brando and with... James Dean, and he was there when uh, Marilyn Monroe was at the Actors Studio in New York. And then he's a Mexican bandit. Not once, not twice, like three or four times. Some people are made to be movie stars. Some are made to be Mexican bandits. <laughs> Although I, I must say, probably I think it was his last role was that uh, Christmas movie with... Uh, Kate Winslet. Last holiday? Yeah, where they or swap. Or no, the holiday. The, the holiday. holiday. Where they swap and she goes to to, to uh, Los Angeles and then the uh, I think it was Kate Winslet ended up going to... Cameron Diaz, Kate Winslet, Jack Black, yep. um, Jude Law. Yes. I thought uh, Eli Wallach was precious in that film. But again, I think he has a certain charisma to it. He just ended up playing these really cartoonish villains that are, I don't know, fun. Which you wouldn't normally say about somebody who is supposed to be menacing, but he's just got a almost a dorky way about being the villain. I don't know, it's just endearing to me. Again, doesn't have well, to be When we get more... to the quotes, the, 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 his last quote it shows that level of uh, enjoyment of the character. Boy, I'm not sure what you're referring to. You came back to this place, a man like you. I don't know why that's cartoonish. Except that, look at him, how he's, even then, he's like half smiling. He's dying, and he can't understand it. And to me, I mean, that in and of itself, there's a certain aspect. Why would you almost be smiling? 
Like you're finding this funny. You're dying. This guy has killed you. And you're just, you know, you're all half laughing because you just can't understand what this just took place. There's a certain comic element to that. Yeah, I, I didn't get that at all. But okay. Fair enough. Let's move on to best scene. What do you have up as your first nominee? I like the I like the scene with Britt and him leaning up against the post and you know the guy calling him out. He said he would have been dead and the guy just can't take, you know, the acceptance of losing and then ends up dead with uh, Britt's knife. And uh, I, I like that. I, lo- I love James Colburn. I wish he would have had a better or longer career. He had a really good career early on, um, developed uh, rheumatoid arthritis and was just bedridden for about 20 years until some inroads and some medication. And he had a resurgence in his career later on, but uh, passed away not too long after that of, uh, I think it was cancer. But uh, he, I just always loved James Colburn. I just thought he was great. And uh, that scene just is him. And uh, that part just fit him so well. No, I, I definitely agree. It was one of my nominees as well. Because going back to Seven Samurai, I think it was one of the scenes that really stuck out to me. And then you want to talk about uh, the fact of an adaptation. I remember this from watching it the first time, but really now that it hits home exactly what it was adapting, I think they did a really great job of figuring out how to make that cinematic and true to the character without it being distracting. Because I think you could have very easily taken that scene as a duel and just made it into a gunfight by making it a knife fight and making it seem like he had a disadvantage with the knife you made an extra flair to his character that wouldn't have otherwise been there. The only problem I have with it is it's really the only major Coburn scene outside of when they go after the scouts per se, and he takes that one shot, you know, it was the worst that he really gets to star. And I found that to be kind of disappointing for how well that scene does and develops and puts his character on that trajectory the character, I think it was, uh, the character name is Kyuzu in Seven Samurai. That one gets a lot more play than Coburn does, and I really wish they would have fleshed out that character and given him a little bit more to do, because it seems like Bronson gets a lot more of the acting scenes in, in this one. Uh, after that initial scene, I unfortunately thought Coburn was kind of like relegated to the bench a little bit. Well, and you don't know what ended up on the cutting room floor. That's fair. I mean, they, they really... Ch- we're adapting a three-and-a-half-hour movie to, like, two hours. Two hours and five minutes, which I thought was kind of... It, it kept it the pace, but they probably could have done a little bit more. And There are very fine. few movies that I would advocate for it being slightly longer, but I think this movie could have been another ten minutes and actually fleshed out the characters and made a little bit more sense where you could have had it a little bit more character driven as opposed to just getting through the plot because you're already cutting down at at least a good half an hour to 40 minutes by making all of those ending fights or skirmishes between the bandits or the, the raiders into one thing that was at the end of the movie as opposed to like, I think, what is it, three or four times they have to kill off different 
swaths of bandits. Yes. Uh, in Seven Samurai. So I just thought they could have used a little bit more, but I understand from a timing standpoint, very rarely are is an audience going to want to sit through uh, something that's uh, that long, especially back then where we didn't have some of these auteur films that were much longer. Well, you still have to remember that this was in the heyday of the studio. I mean, it was coming to an end. The studio system was coming to an end, but they made the films approximately two hours because you could show cinema at seven and turn around and show it again at nine. And so you wanted to make sure it kept within that framework so you could maximize your money at the theaters. No, it makes sense. And I, I completely understand why. It's just, yeah, this is one of the rare times where I would advocate it because we know what the adaptation would be. It feels like it's missing a little bit. Well, and now we probably are more modern times. We would have what would be the director's cut where Sturgis would be able to resurrect some scenes that he didn't want cut necessarily, but had to for time's sake uh, and, and just to see what the difference would be. So you're advocating for hashtag Sturgis cut? Sure. Uh, my first nominee, though, was the first scene that really kind of made me sit up and like, oh, this is an interesting and kind of cool choice to make to adapt. And it's the hearse scene. I yes. It's the one that I really thought aged well in this, I guess, era of wokeness, quote unquote. <laughs> that the way you introduce that character and make him a badge of honor character that's going to be the leader of the group is to take this um, dead Native American character and give him a, uh, at least the opportunity at a proper burial. When the, really the only difference was is the bigotry that they were trying to face down. And I thought that, okay, yeah, this is a, a good scene this is an interesting choice. You're really trying to hit out. I, it was their one really bold or risky choice that I thought was a bit daring for a mainstream Western movie. But I really liked with where they went with that. And I, I kind of gave it a half point in our scoring eventually for just this scene alone. Yeah, I enjoyed that scene a lot because it it really... It really let you know what these two characters were about. That they were willing to sacrifice themselves for what they perceived as being right. A certain moral code that existed, even though, I mean, these two are obviously have made their careers out of killing. But yet they also have a certain morality that they're willing to sacrifice themselves in order to uphold. So it's a it's a it's a real dichotomy that comes out of these characters that um, I wouldn't describe it as a dichotomy. But I, up until that point, I would 100 percent agree with what you were saying. And I think it's a really good way of putting it that what you're doing is doing is setting up their motivation for why they would take on, as you put it in your summary, the lost cause, because they're standing up for essentially what they believe is the right thing. Correct. But yet. Pretty much the choices they've made with their lives have been to be hired guns and to kill and not necessarily with the most high level of morality. At the very least, I think there's a certain yin and yang involved here. With that being said, I think morality is somewhat subjective. 
and against a modern background, of course, but within the time frame that they're describing, it is their own morality of cleaning up the streets with a gun. It's why a movie like Liberty Valance or the man who shot Liberty Valance that you and I like so much ends up bringing about that huge theme of the West and the, what is that? The do, almost the domestication of the West that things can't always be cleaned up by the gun works so well for you and I as, as a major theme for a movie. And I, I think it actually is one of the more, while the, the premise is a little bit simple works as well as it does for me, where you don't have such a anarchy that exists outside of it in what you get in most Westerns. Yeah. Um, it's nuance. Yeah. It's, it's, there's a certain element of nuance and that's kind of the comment that we've made that the films that John Wayne really showed that he was an actor is the parts where he had to be more nuanced. Otherwise, John Wayne was just the same character in a different setting. Well, I would even say that like his Rooster Cogburn wasn't all that varied. Well, I didn't think that was his best performance. I know he got the Academy Award for it. I really thought his more nuanced performance was Liberty Valance. But, and I actually thought he did a really good job in um, The Shootist, which I think was his last film. I think you might be right. Anyway, do you have another nominee? Yes, uh, the scene of being caught by Calvera. I think that that scene just shows that there was a certain element where they felt absolute betrayal. The Seven just could not, you know, we sacrificed. We didn't have to do this. We came here and we're willing to put ourselves on the line for you and you sold us out. I mean, it, it just was like, you just couldn't believe that they would be like that. And uh, that whole scene just showed, it was like, what's the point? And uh, that attitude. So I thought that scene was wow, very well done. It was not something that was a direct pull from Seven Samurai. It was more, you know, to put it within a context of an American Western type setting. And I just liked the way the scene played out. And I liked the way it was uh, portrayed. No, I, I definitely agree from that standpoint. I thought it was one of the scenes that stuck out to me most as a complete deviation, but it worked well as far as plot device because it really ends the, I guess you would say, third act before you get to the final climax of the movie. And it serves that, because I, I don't think, unless you've seen this before, that you really anticipate that. It's surprising without being shocking because of how they set up that scene. You know, we'd be better off with Calvira than we are with you guys. And, and, and they had that whole interplay scene before that of they wanted to quit and, and take care of that. But you still, when the seven come back and basically Calvira gets the drop on them, you, you have this defeated feeling as the audience in the same way that I'm sure they did. And yet you know they're going to go back in and try and save the day. But it does really present the challenge of why. Well, ultimately, I have that scene as another scene, which is the comeback scene. 
it, it, it the return had nothing to do with the village at that point. It was just their own sense of pride. When Colburn bends down, picks up his gun and said, no one makes me give up my gun or no one forces me. I can't remember exactly what it was, but he makes the comment. And at that point in time, there's kind of a mood change where at least six of the seven decide, hey, you know, you're right. I'm not going to put up with this. I'm not going to let them just dictate to me the end. And so it becomes a pride factor. I, I think it makes a little bit more sense where the harsh reality is. And from a scripting standpoint, it makes more sense than the slow decline that Seven Samurai has. I actually think it's one of the areas where I thought this film improved upon the original, at least for that one moment. Yet, I I guess as far as the final gunfight, I mean, it's the most action. I also had it on my list as a nominee, but I have a couple of others I wanted to get to ahead of that. But since we're here, we'll we'll just go ahead and spoil it. The The final gunfight and Harry coming back and how that interplay happened just leading up to that, where, you know, if there's no treasure or fortune, then I'm not putting my neck on the line, but he's the only one of the uh, seven that isn't going to go. But then he shows up at the last second to save them. And you slowly see them being picked apart, but they all die in some heroic way, I guess those of them that do. And they kind of have this last stand, as you put it, much in the same way you kind of get that at the end of Butch and Sundance at the end of the decade. But there is just a a great action scene. You still have a great death from Calvero, Eli Wallach. And it's a good capper on the film that's led up to that really action-packed last scene. I just thought it was a good way to cap the movie, even though it felt a little rushed getting up to those two scenes. I've probably seen this film seven, eight times at least, and it didn't dawn on me until I was watching it that Robert Vaughn had a death wish, that he was almost wishing to die in that battle. The scene where he's going to go in and save uh, or you know, sh- uh, shoot up the room or the 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 I don't know, it was the, the store or whatever it was. He he doesn't come in with his guns drawn. He puts them in the holster and kicks in the door and then comes in and draws. It was almost like to say, you know, I'm going to try and use my skill to beat you. And if I don't have the skill to beat you, then I die and that's okay. It, it just that's seemed- an interesting thing you picked up on with that. I, I guess I had noticed. I mean, why else would you put your guns in the holster going in there where you know the bandits are? No, I, I completely agree with you. Your reasoning on it is sound. It's just something I, I guess I hadn't considered. Did you have any other nominees? I, I still have a couple left. Freeman Advance Party. That was a good one. The scene with uh, Colburn shooting, and that was the most amazing shot. I was aiming at the horse. So I had two left that we hadn't gotten to at least to this point. One I've kind of briefly touched on, but I'll get to the other one first. So Chico can't clap. Maybe not the drunken scene so much, because I, I felt that was grossly overacted. But the original sequence with Brenner's character and how he's basically testing him to see what he was, but it was kind of a clever way of testing him. 
I, I just thought it was really cinematic of the sequencing of that and how they shot it in order to kind of give that final drop or I, I guess like, I, I don't want to put it as your heart sinks, but you, you kind of have that tense moment where you know something's coming. You know he's being tested, but you're not sure what the test is. And I just thought it worked really well. Yeah. And then the other one I had was Bernardo bonding with the kids. Again, I just like the way that Bronson ends up adapting to that circumstance. Because in Seven Samurai, that character that he's based upon really doesn't get a lot of screen time. I think he's the first one killed of the samurai in the movie. And it just, it, it didn't fit. But in this one, they gave him a lot more emotional heart and connection and vulnerability and I think there he becomes somewhat of a surrogate father in a way to these kids. And the way he ends up dying is really fitting to that character construct. So I even though this wasn't a part of the original movie, it, it was a good aside to kind of build upon that character and give us something else that was some character development that I didn't feel that they did enough of with some of the other ones. Okay. All right. So favorite scene then. What do you got down? Just, I guess, the ending. I mean, the ending was just so good. The entire sequence, it was to see each exemplify some level of heroics and then die in the struggle itself. Each had its moment for the the four characters who passed. And I just thought it was so well done and so um, so well-developed through the film. So each part or parcel of the characters they were presented ultimately met their demise in somewhat a foreshadow of what their characters were throughout the film. Yeah, I can definitely see that. And we kind of discussed it already a little bit. My favorite though, I'll go back to the hearse scene. I, I it was really the first one that kind of made me sit up and, Oh, okay, this is a really bold choice. But again, I just like it for the payoff. And there's kind of a easy watchability to the scenes where you have really defined good and evil characters. While it's not realistic, and I know that it doesn't always have the nuance, and I really wouldn't like a very, very simplistic one, it's sometimes good to occasionally have the scenes or those moments in cinema where one guy is just really righteous and one guy is not. And so for me, there are times where I really enjoy that part of film. It's part of why I, I like superhero films so much because those characters become very easily defined, but that, that scene just really works for me. So most indelible moment then, what do you have down? I, I went back and forth to me, it's the the moment I always remember is just the sheer feeling of defeat from being caught by Calvara. That just I always remember that now they just look like they're completely defeated. Like, why did we even bother? And there have been so many moments in my life, and for that matter, so many moments in the last few weeks that I felt like that. It just speaks to me. No, I get that. I'm going to go back to how it was originally described to me when I watched it a few years back with you. Everybody dies at the end. Well, not everybody dies, but 
there is something fitting about that part of it really standing out. And it's the final gunfight. I think it's the lasting image that John Sturgis wanted everybody to be stuck with is these guys made sacrifices in the end and they did it for a cause they ultimately believed they uh, could be a part of or wanted to be a part of and had no other reason other than it was righteous. I I think that just is always going to stick out to me. So let's take a quick pause in the action and we'll be right, right back. Welcome back. Before we get into best funniest lines, Dad, do we have anyone we need to remember this week? Yes, a very uh, well-known and uh, award-winning actress, Olympia Dukakis, passed this week. Uh, She won a uh, Best Supporting Actress Award for Moonstruck. She was also in Steel Magnolias, uh, Tale of the City, and Mr. Holland's Opus. Moonstruck was 1987, directed by Norman Jewison. He predicted that Dukakis would get the uh, uh, award. Her comment uh, in her life was, uh, and I think this was an interview she did about doing Steel Magnolias, having a great part with great people and great, great amounts of money. In addition to her Oscar, she took a Golden Globe in the same category. Her honors included or Los Angeles New York Times Film Critic Awards. She had the role of nonsense matriarch Casteroni in uh, Tushar's Best Actress Award as Loretta in Moonstruck. She was nominated for an Academy or Canadian Academy Award in the event. Middle of the 20th, uh, or the first decade of the 20th century, she had a bunch of roles. Three Needles, The Librarian, Returned to King Solomon's Mind, in the land of women and away from her. She had done a wide range of things, had been on television, had been on Broadway. Is also known as being the cousin of Michael Dukakis, the former um, Massachusetts governor who was the uh, nominee for president in 1988. Very gifted actor, very fine lady. Lost her at age uh, 89, so... So I don't personally remember, or I guess I have not seen Steel Magnolias or Mr. Holland's Opus, so I really don't know her from that. Unfortunately, my opinion of Moonstruck is this is supposed to be a really good film. <laughs> I've never seen Moonstruck. You'll eventually see it, but I know I, I watched it this last year, and I'm like, why is this heralded as one of these great movies? Like, if if you want to know where the quintessential Nick Cage acting style came from, it's got to be this movie because he so overplays every piece that he's saying. I, I just, I don't understand it. And I don't understand the plotting of this movie. I don't understand the motivations. But eventually we'll get to that one. So I guess I'm burying or spoiling our eventual review. It's unfortunate because I did find I do find her at least in the few roles that I did see as somebody charismatic and kind and engaging at least on screen. I don't know anybody uh, that knows her personally or uh, that had anything negative necessarily in that. It's just well, I um, the first movie I remember seeing her in was taking your mother to see Steel Magnolias. 
And at the time, I had not seen Pretty Woman. And this was the, f- the second film that Julia Roberts had done. So this was the first time I had seen her. Dolly Parton was in it, Sally Field, Olympia Dukakis. It was just a very well-done film and uh, very Southern. It was not far removed from when we were going to go. Well, I think we were early on married. So this is like 1990, 91 maybe, um, going to the movie theater and seeing this. So I just always remember that film and having an empathy to go to the South, the magnolia trees of uh, South Carolina and Georgia. And when eventually we got down there, just remembering the film. Honestly, I believe Steel Magnolias is actually 89. It came out after Pretty Woman, I thought. I think it's the other way around. And then uh, one of my favorite films is Mr. Holland's Opus, which is the story of a man who has dreams of greatness and uh, lives a fairly ordinary life and thinks he's failed because of it, ultimately realizing what impact his life had at the very end. A movie that we are likely to cover at some point. Uh, Very much so. It is the quintessential middle-aged man film. Yes, and we're going to have some really dark twists in that movie. (laughs) Yes. Anyway, all right. So then let's move over to uh, Best Funniest Lines. What do you have now? All right. Well, I had quoted Calvera, you came back. To a place like this, a man like you. I just love that line because it's just like he just can't understand it. it it's and and you see that often where where people act in a way that is so opposite of what they are, you just can't understand what's motivating them. Chris Adams, I've been offered a lot for my work, but never everything. I think that says a lot. You go back to, and I, gosh, the amount of sermons that I've heard about the old woman with the two cents, essentially, or whatever the Jewish equivalent is in, you know, the I can't remember which gospel it's from, but that she puts her last two pennies because she has belief and faith in God, and she gives everything back to him, and the, the great faith of this woman, and I don't know. I'm trying not to make fun of it or make light of it. And I know I, I sound like I am, but essentially it, it struck me a little bit that the villagers really were offering him basically everything that they had in order to help them out because they were in a sort of, a sort of desperation where they didn't know what else they could do. After having done our films over the last several months, this line, and I have it, I actually forgot I had written down, but James Colburn's line, Brit. And it Coburn. just brought back Colburn, excuse me, James Colburn's line, Brit, which just brought back <laughs> Dodgeball. Nobody throws me my own guns and says, run. Nobody. It just reminded me of, nobody makes me bleed my own blood. I'm just wondering if they, when they were writing that line, they thought of that. Well, it's quite possible. All right. So these might be two of the best 
I don't know, what, what would you call it? Like folksy stories? Those uh, certain stories that like the farmers pull out to teach some type of lesson and they've got some weird, I, I want to say like uh, rural wisdom. Okay. Vin, fella I once knew in El Paso. One day he took off all his clothes and jumped in a mess of cactus. I asked him the same question. Why? He said it seemed to be a good idea at the time. <laughs> Vin, what are you going to do when Calera comes? Oh, at my age, a little excitement is welcome. Don't worry. Why would he kill me? Bullets cost money. Why did you read that as a Spaniard if it's coming from Steve McQueen's character? No, that's the old man answering. Ah. Vin. Reminds me of that fella back home who fell off a ten-story building. As he was falling, people on each floor kept hearing him say, So far, so good. So, so far, so good. Hilario. Very young and very proud. Chris. Well, the graveyards are full of boys who are very young and very proud. Then we have Bernardo O'Reilly. Don't you ever say that again about your fathers, because they are not cowards. You think I'm brave because I carry a gun? Well, your fathers are much braver because they carry responsibility for you, your brothers, your sisters, and your mothers. And this responsibility is like a big rock that weighs a ton. It bends and it twists them until finally it buries them under the ground. I have never had this kind of courage. Running a farm, working like a mule every day with no guarantee that will ever come of it, this is bravery. That's why I never started anything like that. It's the why I never will. That's all I had. I I have one more. Go ahead. Miguel. There's one. Look at all the scars on his face. Hilario. The man for us is the one who gave him that face. Chris. Hey, you learn fast. I just like that one. All right. So let's go over to the Stanley rubric. And before we get too into the scoring quite yet. I know you didn't mean to do this, but in the edit for last week's episode, you oddly enough proposed a two-tier test for Legacy. So, you had half the points being like film as a art or industry side, which encompasses culture, or not, excuse me, the critics and the industry, and the filmmakers, and the actors, and those that have to do with the filmmaking process or how it's understood. And then you had the general audience population culture at large. And so I judged this week based on this two sets. Five points apiece for each. Okay. That's how I did my score. So if you don't mind, I'm actually going to start out Legacy for Well, one that's week. fine, because that's me. That's I, I'm always on the cutting edge of new ideas. You've probably come up with some of the more nuanced uh, ideas of how to do the scoring system that I've kind of adapted over time. So first side of things. For the critics that never discuss this really with the best Westerns nor the best movies, it had middling reviews even years later. Despite its general popularity with the social aspect at large, I wouldn't say that this is critically understood by people or filmmakers to be one of the better westerns. So I gave it a three. 
on the one side of that. So three out of five. For culture at large, though, it gave us one of the early starring moments for Bronson and McQueen, as well as Eli Wallach, spawned several sequels, has an iconic name and score, and was the second most TV-shown movie, as we mentioned earlier on in the uh, recognition portion of this. So I think this movie kind of lives a little bit larger as a icon of the audience, as it or as opposed to an icon of the film industry, somewhat inversely to how we looked at the legacy for Seven Samurai, which I think is more revered among critic and filmmaker circles, as opposed to the general audience at large. So I went with a 4.5 on the second half, added up for a 7.5. All right. So what did you have? Okay, I, I came at this a little differently. Yes, the critics never really gave it much. But what this film was for the critics and for Hollywood was kind of a, a gateway film. High Noon became the first real film where there was some actual nuance to the characters in it, and it wasn't all about the good guy and the bad guy. And, you know, it, it, there was a certain element of the film that was different than the normal Western. But between that film and this, there wasn't this concept of the flawed hero. And I think this film is ultimately what gave permission to a wide range of 1960s westerns, such as The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, where it's much more about the nuanced characters and the there was more development of the characters themselves. So to that extent, I gave it a, a four out of five for what I think it had an ultimate impact. I can even see this film changing how Westerns were done the late 60s, even the 70s, into one of my favorite Westerns from my high school years, which is Silverado. And um, so to that extent, I went with a four out of that five. The As far as legacy for the culture, I'm a big fan of Cheers. And during the pandemic, I watched all of the episodes of Cheers from one. There are several episodes where it talks about the bar all getting together at Sam's whenever the Magnificent Seven was on TV. And they all had this big party to celebrate watching the Magnificent Seven. That is not the only time I've heard this. I have heard about in college where a bunch of the guys would get together when the Magnificent Seven was on, and it was a big event. And I think this went on throughout the 70s, 80s, into the early 90s with my generation, that this was a film that spoke to us, that we grew up with, that was different than other Westerns. And so I gave that actually a 4.5 for that reason. So I went with a 9.5 for Legacy. All right, so that's going to average out to an 8.5 between us. So I went with the same two-tiered test, though, for impact significance, but being on the shorter term. So I for the industry side of it, I went with a 4. None of the actors were really household names save for Brenner, who was already a star from the 50s. 
But it did spawn several roles for the cast, including one of the films that made Bronson, McQueen, and Coburn the great escape three years later with the same director, John Sturgis. On the flip side, this was kind of a mild box office at the time. It drew rather middling crowd reviews. It was not a particularly, I guess, big film in the immediate. I think this gained more steam the later on it got because of what it may have influenced as far as uh, filmmaking and Westerns after that, and some of the cast that became bigger stars after this movie had come out and was through its original run. So that I gave a two. Overall impact significance, six. I went with 7.5. A lot of the same reasons you did. I just have a little higher evaluation of some of the film for that reason. See, I don't, I, I wasn't, you know, it's three years before I was born, but I remember this film in the early 70s, and I remember it throughout the 70s and 80s, and I know that's outside of our impact and significance, so maybe that's clouding my view of it, of what impact it ultimately had. So that's why I went with 7.5. And that's fair. I mean, I didn't live through the time either, but, you know, it's, it's something to consider. All right, so then we'll go to novelty. What did you have down? It's hard to give a, an adaptation film a lot of points on novelty. Um, there was nuance about the the aspect of be, this being a Western and the, the way the Western was done and the humanity of the gunfighters, the gunslingers. I went with a 4.5 for novelty as a result simply because of the uh, aspect of changing kind of the perception of gunfighters in general. So I forgot to give our average score on the last one. That was a 6.75 between us. For novelty, though, you you kind of said it or touched on it a little bit, and I mentioned it a little bit before. Adaptations are hard. Just seeing the difference in trying to do one versus the other, but making it somehow different or unique, like this must have been a much tougher task than we probably give it credit for. But I think there was a lot of sentimentality, plotting, character development that's just lost in this version. And I've kind of touched on those before, but I really didn't care for the fact that they combined the Katsushiro and Kikuchiu parts together in Chico, not helped out by the fact that I, I really didn't care for the actor, but <laughs> it, it brought in an odd new character with Harry Luck that's obsessed with treasure, but it's thinly developed at best. Like he, that's his only motivation and it only sets up his demise at the end, but really we don't get much from him at all at any other point in the film. So it doesn't really make sense to me. And the other big important aspect of Seven Samurai that is distinctly different from this movie is the role of the villagers. They're somewhat bystanders in this movie by comparison to Seven Samurai, where they're bamboo-wielding or spear-wielding, I guess, colleagues? It's not the right word, but like they're standing side by side trying to help them out. In this movie, the final gunfight, they're kind of standby 
They're yeah. they're almost observers. And so I didn't think it gave them the same agency as like when the one villager dies, there that was a really impactful moment in Seven Samurai that you really don't get in this version. Now, maybe that's to say that I, I felt I was missing out or some of the touchstones that uh, affected me more in watching Seven Samurai than this movie, but it's just some of the things that I thought were a little bit missing. That being said, I have to give some credit to this for making the last gunfight more cinematic. I said it kind of already that I just thought, I think I mentioned this in last week's episode, I think I mentioned it already at the top of this episode, that the way that plays out, while it's realistic, because they're sword fighting, there's no real guns. I mean, there's the muskets there in Seven Samurai, but it's not the same gunfighting as this. It would have been hard for them to make one big final battle, but in a Hollywood cinematic version of this, you knew that it had to come down to one thing, and so their ability to somehow make that into one final last stand, uh, the gunfight at the end, I think had a better cinematic quality to it, insofar as the action goes. The other difficulty with this in moving genres, it has to be at least taken into account, even though I would argue that samurai movies are kind of the Japanese Western. So I gave it a three, because even though they were adapting and it's hard, I didn't necessarily think it was as good a job in making it very different or distinct, even though you could just simply rely on, well, that was a samurai movie and you're adapting it to a Western, so that's got to give it big points right there. I can see that argument, I just don't buy that argument. Okay. So the difference between us then, or excuse me, the average between us would be 3.75. Classicness, what do you got? I went with an 8.5 simply because the various characters in this all seem to be recreated in a lot of different Western films from this point on throughout the 60s, 70s, and 80s. You know, I mean, each one had a certain element to them, a certain quality that made them distinct, but yet all cut from the same cloth. And I thought that was interesting. I mean, and again, I'll go back to the film that I saw as a in high school that I loved, Silverado, Brian Dennehy and Kevin Klein, Kevin Costner, etc. And in that film, it was like they took the script and said, all right, we need a we need a gambler, we need a irresponsible gunfighter, we need a old sage, we need and to some extent each of these seven have certain qualities like that. And I think that those ended up they took those aspects of those characters and converted them into different scripts throughout that the next three decades for that in the Western category style, I guess would be how I'd put it. So that's why I gave it a classicness level over there. The only cringe worthy moment is again, it's the problem of having a Jewish uh, actor from New York playing a Mexican bandit. It, it's not nearly as bad as Mickey Rooney playing Japanese in breakfast at Tiffany's, but, um, you know, there's a certain aspect where you kind of go, mm -hmm, but okay. 
honestly, I didn't even come to that moment. It, it wasn't even highlighted in mine, and it probably should have been, but I didn't think of it. I've said many times that classicness for me, and I'll, I'll try and make this very simple, starts at an eight, and I didn't really find any cringeworthy moments or anything that seemed out of place. It felt like it aged pretty well for what it was. It's still a male-driven movie for the most part, but there is some level of diversity kind of in this, so I, I can't fault it too much, especially for when it, where it was coming from. And I, I guess I gave it that extra half point up that I mentioned before for the hearse scene. So I ended up at the same score, just a little bit different or easier way of getting to that, that point. What you said, though, and I made a joke at the top when we were going through the cast, you know, where we were getting the descriptions, you know, the drifter and the the guy who is desperate for money. And and they fill out all of those roles. I said, oh, yeah, and I'm not reading a character list for the A-team, but every team up movie, you know, everybody's got a specific job to do, whether it's Mission mm-hmm. Impossible or the Avengers or so. Every character has their role within this team structure. So you, you hit on something there that makes a lot of sense. So what's the average between our scores? Hmm. Let me think about that one. Make the Port Edwards School District proud. Fuck off. <laughs> you were the president of that. Anyway, rewatchability. Better than average. Uh, don't need to be in a certain state of mind because uh, this is, again, despite the deaths at the end, it's kind of a bright, well-paced, driving movie. It doesn't feel dour or sad or depressing in any way. Even at the end, you know, you can kind of give or take, but it was like valiant sacrifice. So I, I can't even put that against it. I would be able to put this on on any given night without an issue. It's just not one I'm necessarily seeking out. I ended up at a 6.5. I, I had 7.5 simply because of the factor of what my normal interests are and such. And then I thought about it and I'm like, I remember sitting watching this film, you know, in the chair you gave me for Father's Day, the chair, the, the golden chair, as I call it, which is either I'm enjoying watching television or I'm falling asleep, uh, sometimes both just smiling and going, oh my, why haven't I watched this film again so in, you know, in so long? Because this is just really a fun film. And so I'm going to mark it up to an eight for that very reason. Fair enough. So the difference between us or the average would be 7.25. So then let's move to audience score. We had a 90% for Google users. on Rotten Tomatoes for audience score, leading to an 8.85, giving us a final total of 43.6, which would put it between Pretty Woman and the Philadelphia Story. Okay. Not quite as high as Seventh and Samurai, but kind of in the general vicinity. All right. Remaining questions. I didn't have any. I think this does a pretty good job of wrapping it up, at least nothing different than what we kind of talked about last week with Seven Samurai. And that, I think, had more storylines that were left a little bit open. This one pretty well closes all the loops as far as I'm concerned. 
The only thing was is, and it actually is resolved by the sequel that was done six years later, which is what ultimately happened to these antiquated specimens of a bygone era. I guess go watch that movie if you want. I, th- I think since we looked at them, uh, they might be on Prime? I think ours? it is. Something like that. Because so. we could find the sequels. We couldn't find the original when we were trying to watch it this week. So again, we apologize that uh, it was not on Stars. Uh, anything else before we close down for the week? No, I'm looking forward to uh, Military uh, Month. Like I said, uh, I don't know why I've had a, a real proclivity towards A Bridge Too Far since it was released. Um, and I watched it uh, on HBO. I, I mean, I used to I used to get an HBO guide just to let everyone know the extent of this. And I would mark when it was going to be and I would try to watch it multiple times. This is pre-DVR, so you had to watch it whenever it was on or you missed it. So I would mark when it was going to be on and would try to tune in and watch it whenever it was available. So I think I saw it when it was first released on HBO probably f- five, six times. And it's a three-hour movie. It goes it goes fairly quickly. Well, we'll see. I haven't seen it before. And actually, none of the three movies we have nominated for Military uh, Month I have seen to this point. So I'm looking I forward to I do believe to- you've seen Glory, but you were in a bassinet. I have seen the last scene of Glory a couple of different times because a certain seventh grade teacher of mine showed it to us multiple times as the good white people were really, really great about helping out these black people. And this was a great sign of progress. (laughs) Uh, uh, I don't know if you remember being uh, where Fort Wagner was ultimately. When we went to North Carolina, we were on the beach along the sand and, you know, there was just a plaque that said, this is where Fort Wagner was. I, I don't really know much, if anything, about the movie or, or what any of that was. So, But we'll get into that when we get into yes. the movie. Since we had technically, yes, Glory is one of the movies we're going to be doing. Yes. Well, this is my life. It always will be. There's nothing else. Just us and the microphones. And those wonderful people out there in the dark. All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. Next week, we will be doing A Bridge Too Far, currently streaming on Netflix. You won't want to miss that one. Please like, subscribe, review, or whatever on whichever platform you have so that you can join in on our fun. You can also email the show at greatestalltimemoviepodcast at gmail.com. And don't forget to sign up for our newsletter there. Find us on Instagram at gmotepodcast or find Dana or I on Twitter at tj3duncan or at danawduncan. Greatest Movie of All Time is a production of Ronnie Duncan Studios. Our show is mixed, edited, and written by Thomas Duncan. Our music is thanks to Purple Planet Music. Our technical provider and distributor is Captivate FM.